If you have a Bible with you today, and I hope that you did bring a copy of God's Word, open it up with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, once again this morning, we're going to read the entire chapter. Somewhat unusual chapter in God's Word, but yet a very important chapter in God's Word. Daniel 7. I remind you, this is the inerrant Word of God. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. The mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. The beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one before which the first three horns were plucked up by the roots. Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. 
As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them till the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. The time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. The kingdom and the dominions and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The word of the Lord. If you've ever watched that classic old movie, The Wizard of Oz, you'll know that the film starts off in black and white and then suddenly transitions into color right at the point where Dorothy is whisked off over the rainbow and comes to realize she's not in Kansas anymore. Well, This morning, friends, as we continue along in our study of the book of Daniel, we're at a similar point of transition where there's a very obvious shift in the book. There's a shift in content. There's a shift in the style. There's a shift in the tone. And like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, we find ourselves this morning in what seems to be very strange and unfamiliar territory. You know, the book of Daniel is somewhat unique in the fact that it contains some of the most familiar chapters in the Word of God, right alongside some of the most perplexing chapters in the Word of God. What might seem to us at first glance to be a mystery wrapped up in an enigma. The first six chapters of this inspired book are written in a narrative style that's very familiar and accessible to almost everyone in our culture. Exciting stories about Daniel and his three friends that are set in the kingdom of Babylon and in the court of these ancient kings. But once we turn the page from chapter 6 and leave the familiarity of the lion's den, it's clear we're not in Kansas anymore. Very often, it's at this transitional point in the book of Daniel that Christian readers get bogged down, that Christian pastors quit preaching the text, and that we move on to other parts of the Bible that seem easier to grasp and more relevant for our daily lives. For many believers, the chapters we're going to be looking at in coming weeks appear to be totally irrelevant and unaccessible, perhaps not even worth the effort to understand. With God's help, friends, we're going to discover that these rather challenging chapters in God's Word were placed here for the same purpose as every other chapter, to instruct us in the ways of our sovereign God and to point us forward in time towards the coming of Jesus Christ and the final consummation of His kingdom. And so this morning we are venturing together into territory that is somewhat strange and unfamiliar, but rest assured, this text is of vital significance to our lives and to the dying world in which we live. As we dig into Daniel 7 this morning, I want us to consider its meaning and its application under two main headings. First of all, Daniel's vision of the beasts, and secondly, God's victory over them all. 
This is a chapter in God's Word that both frightens us and relieves us, but the accent of the text is most definitely on the decisive victory that Jesus Christ has won over evil and the hope that belongs to each and every one of His true followers. You know, one of the reasons why these final chapters in the book of Daniel seem so strange and unfamiliar to us is that they are written in a style that seems totally foreign to our Western culture and worldview. I think most of us here in this room today have studied English at some point along the way. You'll probably remember back in high school or, or elementary school that your teacher introduced you to a variety of different writing styles, what we sometimes call literary genre. And so all of us at some point along the way have learned to tell the difference between stories and poetry and business letters and uh, essays and dramatic plays, a wide variety of literary forms and styles. If I put a piece of poetry in front of you this morning, you're going to read and understand that poem in a somewhat different way than you would read a, ch- a paragraph out of a history textbook. Or if you receive a love letter from your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're going to read it differently than a letter from your lawyer's office. Poems tend to be full of metaphors and images. History books and form letters tend to be full of facts and dates and propositions. And so, for example, when I open up my Bible to Psalm 91 and I read there in that text that God will cover you with His feathers and provide refuge under His wings, I understand immediately we are dealing with poetic imagery that it would be foolish to conclude from that verse that God physically looks like a chicken. By the same token, when I turn to Mark 15 and I read in that text that the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, I realize that the author is making a historical observation and not merely speaking on the level of metaphor. For most of us, it is not that difficult to distinguish between poetry and prose because both of those literary forms are popular in our culture. Both of them have been taught to us since the time we were very young. But what's challenging here in the second half of the book of Daniel is that we're dealing with a type of literature that has no real parallel in our daily lives outside of the Bible itself. This is a unique form of writing. It's a unique form of literature that we encounter almost exclusively in the Scripture. And that's what makes it so confusing, so disorienting to the average reader. Now, the form of literature we're dealing with here in Daniel 7, we encounter in other biblical texts, such as Zechariah and certain parts of Ezekiel and Isaiah and the book of Revelation, is called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. That's just a fancy word that simply means revelation. And even more than poetry, apocalyptic literature is filled with symbols, with images, and with metaphors that need to be interpreted and understood on a figurative level. It's going to become very important as we dig into a chapter like this one, or if we venture into the New Testament book of Revelation that draws so much of its imagery from the book of Daniel from other apocalyptic sections of the Old Testament. We are dealing here with highly symbolic literature, a form of writing that is intended to contrast the present evil age with the age to come when the Lord Jesus will intervene decisively and bring this present evil age to a very sudden and violent end. And so, friends, before we study this chapter in any detail, we have got to understand what we're dealing with because that will dictate the interpretive approach that we bring to the text. 
And sadly, the truth is, a great deal of fanciful nonsense has come out of the book of Daniel by well-meaning people who don't really understand the type of literature we're dealing with here and who therefore miss the point that both the inspired author and the Holy Spirit was intending to communicate. There are a number of transitions here in Daniel 7, the first of which is this shift in literary style. But secondly, we see here in this chapter a shift in the audience that is being addressed. In chapters 1 to 6 of this book, the emphasis is clearly on God's message for nations and peoples that do not know Him. Men like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius and others. The first six chapters in the book of Daniel reveal God's sovereign power to people living outside of God's covenant, but the remaining chapters in the book contain a message for the covenant people of God and indeed a message for the prophet Daniel himself. You'll notice in the first six chapters of the book, Daniel is the main interpreter of the visions. But now in the second half of the book, Daniel is the main recipient of the visions. Very often now, Daniel will be the one in need of interpretation, as we see right here in chapter 7. God is now speaking directly to his servant Daniel, to all of us who have been graciously, graciously brought under his covenant, all of Abraham's spiritual seed, whether believing Jews in the old covenant or Christians in the new covenant. This is a message for the family of God, and it is a message that has been given primarily for our consolation and for our encouragement. One more shift I would draw your attention to this morning is the shift in chronology and time. Back in the first half of the book of Daniel, all of the stories of Daniel and his three friends follow a chronological pattern as we trace Daniel's ministry from his teenage years in Babylon to his old age in the Persian Empire. But now with this series of visions in the second half of the book, that chronological pattern has been interrupted. The very end of chapter 6, we were in the reign of King Cyrus the Persian, but now in chapter 7, we've suddenly been transported back in time to the first year of King Belshazzar. And so, brothers and sisters, we see that, it, that these concluding chapters are not intended to give us a strict chronological sequence, but are rather received by the prophet Daniel at various points in his ministry. Now I say all of this by way of introduction to the second half of Daniel. With that foundation laid, we are now ready to look at the actual visions he receives in this chapter, which is really a nightmare of four beasts that suddenly appear out of a restless sea. Before examining the description of the beasts themselves, we ought to say a word about the place that they come from, for this is very significant in establishing the ominous tone for this chapter. Verse 2 of the text, Daniel introduces his dream to us and tells us that he saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. This is imagery that would have been very familiar and very foreboding in the context and culture of the ancient Near East. As we all know by now, Daniel lived in the Babylonian Empire and in the mythology of that ancient civilization, the sea was viewed to be a place of great danger and great chaos. It was the abode of sea monsters. It was a threatening force of nature that could not be easily tamed. The authors of the Old Testament, writing under divine inspiration, pick up the image of the sea, and although they don't buy into the mythology of the pagan neighbors, they do write in such a way that they would be understood in their own culture. 
And so we read in Psalm 89 that the Lord rules the raging of the sea and that He crushed Rahab like a carcass. And Rahab in that context refers to an ancient sea creature that takes on demonic proportions. The same kind of sea imagery is found in Psalm 74 where we see the Lord dividing the sea by His might and breaking the heads of the sea monsters on the water, not the least of which is Leviathan, a fire-breathing creature who makes several appearances in the Old Testament. This close association of the sea with all of the demonic forces of chaos and evil is present in the Bible. And the same theme reappears later on in the book of Revelation where we see a dragon standing beside the sea and another evil beast that we're going to talk about in a few moments. Daniel's description here of the wind stirring up the sea sets the tone for what is about to happen in the vision. In this case, four frightening beasts that suddenly emerge out of the water. First beast that Daniel sees in his vision is described in verse 4, a beast like a lion that has the wings of an eagle. The second one in verse 5 is like a bear that's already beginning to devour its prey. The third beast in verse 6 is a four-headed monster that has characteristics of both a leopard and a bird. The final beast introduced in verse 7 has iron teeth, bronze claws, and a series of threatening horns, one of which is able to speak like a man. It's very strange, almost grotesque uh, description here. And I hope it goes without saying that these creatures being described by the prophet Daniel are not animals that exist in the real world. This is the strange new world of apocalyptic literature. In this case, a series of four beastly symbols that point beyond themselves and towards a spiritual reality with which we must contend as God's people. Now friends, I'm not sure what you dreamed about last night, but I must say I'm not surprised to learn here in verse 15 that this vision provoked great anxiety in Daniel's spirit and a sense of spiritual alarm. As a prophet of God who possessed the gift of dream interpretation, Daniel knew the dream contained a message from the Lord, but in this case it is not Daniel who gives the interpretation, but an angelic being who is mentioned in verse 16. We're told in that verse, Daniel asked for the interpretation and then the meaning of the symbols is given in the next verse, in verse 17. It says these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Verse 17 is the interpretive key for the entire vision and with that, the mystery of these creatures is unveiled before our eyes. Like Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue back in chapter 2, we are dealing once again here in chapter 7 with a succession of world empires beginning with the Babylonian Empire and extending forward in time. You Remember, I hope from our study back in chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about a statue that was made out of various materials, a head of gold and a torso of silver and legs of brawn and feet of clay and iron. I didn't go into a lot of specific detail in that sermon because I knew that this chapter was coming. But I did suggest briefly that the head represents Babylon, the torso represents the Medo-Persian Empire, the legs represent the Greek Empire, and the feet represent the Roman Empire. Four powerful world empires that bridge the time between the Babylonian exile and the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah who would usher in the kingdom of God. 
Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, was given a little glimpse into the future. And here in chapter 7, the prophet Daniel is given the same information from a slightly different perspective. Like Nebuchadnezzar's statue in chapter 2, each one of the beasts here in chapter 7 correspond to a historical empire. The first beast that looked like a lion and an eagle is almost certainly to be identified with the empire of Babylon and with King Nebuchadnezzar. This imagery is found elsewhere in the Bible. Also significant is the fact that the beast's wings are plucked off in the dream, and that's most likely a reference to the king's seven-year period of humiliation that we learned about in chapter 4. Second beast in Daniel's vision that looked like a bear devouring its prey is symbolic of the Medo-Persian empire headed up by King Cyrus. The third beast points forward beyond Daniel's lifespan to the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, an ambitious leader who conquered all of the known world with the speed of a leopard and is said to have wept at the age of 33 because he had nothing left to conquer. Fourth beast in Daniel's vision has long been debated by Bible scholars, but I take it to be a representation of the Roman Empire that ruled the world with an iron fist that eventually became the great persecutor of the Christian church. This fourth beast is covered in horns, symbolic of its great power and authority, and as I understand it, these ten horns represent a succession of Roman emperors. Even more mysterious, however, is the little horn that rises from among the ten, a symbol that may well refer to Emperor Nero, one of the most wicked and depraved men who has ever walked on the earth, and a man who would certainly fit the description given in verse 21. Although Nero started off as a competent ruler, we know from history that he developed into a murderous tyrant, burning down the city of Rome and then shifting the blame onto the Christians and then persecuting the church by burning Christians alive and throwing them to beasts in the arena. I have no desire to be dogmatic on this point. You are free to disagree with me if you wish. But it seems to me that Daniel is being given a glimpse into the future suffering of God's people who have to contend with this wicked man. Whatever the case may be, the four beasts here in Daniel's vision represent a succession of world empires that will rise and fall. The same message that Nebuchadnezzar received back in chapter 2, but repeated now for a slightly different reason. When God gave Nebuchadnezzar that initial dream back in chapter 2, it was a warning that the king wasn't immortal, that one day his empire would be destroyed and his throne would be taken over by someone else. God's intention in revealing that to Nebuchadnezzar was to provoke humility and repentance. But here in chapter 7, the same information is given to Daniel for a different purpose. God's purpose here in this context is not to humble Daniel, but rather to help him understand that evil and suffering will be an ongoing reality throughout this present age. Daniel received this vision when he was well into his 80s. He knew from the writings of Jeremiah the prophet that the length of exile would be about 70 years. Daniel spent the bulk of his life outside of the promised land, but he knew from studying scripture that the exile was almost over and that God's people would soon return to their own land. The time was coming to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and you can only imagine the sense of excitement and anticipation that must have filled Daniel's heart. But now in chapter 7, God is giving his prophet a very sobering reminder. 
The time of the exile may indeed be coming to an end. The covenant people may indeed be returning to the promised land. But that doesn't mean that their suffering is over or that the forces of evil in the world will no longer need to be reckoned with. God wants Daniel to know that hostile nations will continue to rise and fall, that persecution will continue to be the plight of the righteous, and that hard times are still on the way. Indeed, we know from history just how hard those times were for Daniel and his people. In one sense, it's true, the exile did come to an end in the year 539 B.C. when King Cyrus the Persian issued an edict allowing the Jewish people to return to the land. But in another sense, the exile continued, continued on. Exile was a painful reality for the people of God. Even in the years after they returned to the land, they were oppressed by nation after nation, suffering under the tyranny of one ruler after another, being subject to persecution that is almost unimaginable. They suffered under the Persian Empire, and then they suffered under the Greeks. They suffered under the Seleucids. They suffered under the Romans. Centuries of opposition and persecution and despair culminating in the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. That's why God gave this vision to the prophet Daniel to show him and to show future generations the grim reality of life in a fallen and broken world like ours where one beast goes and another beast shows up. You know, friends, it's very significant, I think, that many centuries after Daniel's nightmare, a Christian prophet named John was given yet another vision of a beast that we read about in Revelation 13. Using the same kind of apocalyptic language and symbolism, John writes in that chapter that he saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seems to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty, blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. Later on this afternoon, or maybe later on this week, I would encourage you to sit down with an open Bible, compare the beasts of Revelation 7 with the beasts of Revelation 13, and this is what you will discover. The beast that John saw in his vision many centuries later is a composite of all of the beasts that are described in, in Daniel 7. It is a fearsome, ten-headed creature that represents all of the forces of evil in the present age. As Christian believers, we can recognize this final beast as the embodiment of evil, or in other words, the embodiment of Antichrist. And that, by the way, is a phrase that was coined by John himself in one of his earlier letters. Writing in the second chapter of his first epistle, John says, Little children, it is the last hour. 
by the way he wrote that back in the first century. We've been in the last hour for 2,000 years. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists, plural, have come. The Apostle John understood what God had revealed to Daniel so many centuries earlier, namely the fact that there will be an ongoing succession of evil men and evil empires throughout the the whole age. On the one hand, John can speak in his epistle of many antichrists who will persecute Christians and oppose the truth of God. On the other hand, John can speak of a singular antichrist who will rise up at the end of time as the embodiment of evil on earth. By the way, that's the same evil person mentioned by Paul in 2 Thessalonians and described as the man of lawlessness, a final eschatological beast who will rise up from the sea, making war on the saints and to prevail over them for a certain period of time. Brothers and sisters, the prophet Daniel needed to be reminded about the reality and the durability of evil in his generation, and so do we in our generation. Those four beasts of Daniel 7 may be long gone from our vantage point in history, but the multi-headed beast of Revelation 13 is still very much present in our world today and will continue to be present in our world right up until the very end. Well, we've dealt now with Daniel's vision of the beast and we move on now to the second part of the vision celebrating God's victory over them all. If the first half of Daniel's vision has the effect of provoking anxiety and alarm within our minds and hearts, the second half of this vision ought to calm our fears and reassure us in a very wonderful way. For we see here in these verses the triumph of our God over all of his enemies and the ultimate destruction of the beast. You think back to chapter 2 for a minute, you may remember that Nebuchadnezzar's dream ended with a stone that broke the statue in pieces and then grew to become a mountain that filled the whole earth. That stone was a picture of God's eternal kingdom triumphing gloriously over all of its rivals, a kingdom that will not pass away. Now for Nebuchadnezzar, that was a pretty threatening vision uh, because it meant the end of his empire. But here in the context of chapter 7, the presentation of God's king and of God's kingdom is a welcome relief for the persecuted people of God. Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the kingdom of God is front and center. But here in chapter 7, we get a glimpse of the king himself, identified in verse 9 as the ancient of days. These are remarkable verses to consider, friends, but as we study them this morning, we must constantly remind ourselves that this is a symbolic representation of God and not a physical description of what God looks like. I hope you understand that. God the Father is spirit, and because of that, He does not have a physical body like you and me. He is invisible. He's incorporeal. And the Bible is clear that nobody has ever seen God the Father. Nevertheless, here in the book of Daniel and in his apocalyptic vision, we see God the Father depicted symbolically as though he were a man. You'll notice, first of all, that he's described and introduced to us as the Ancient of Days. That's a title that highlights God's eternal nature, the fact that God is uncreated, that he has no beginning, and that he will have no end. The description of the white clothing points us towards the perfect holiness of God. The fact that God is sinless. The fact that God is righteous and perfect in all of His works and all of His ways. 
The white and woolen hair is a symbol of God's infinite wisdom and knowledge. He is the omniscient creator of heaven and earth and nobody can teach God something that he doesn't already know. And then finally, the fiery throne speaks of God's perfect justice. The fact that He will judge the wicked and that He, and that he will repay every man and woman for what they have done. Daniel sees here a symbolic representation of God in all of His splendor and glory. The King of the universe who has no equal in heaven or on earth. Verses 9 and 10, we see this vision of God the Father, the Ancient of Days, who has authority to judge and destroy the beast with fire. But as we continue into the next paragraph, we're introduced to yet another remarkable figure identified in verse 13 as the Son of Man. And I hope you noticed in a couple of our songs this morning, we sang about the Son of Man. This, brothers and sisters, is none other than the Messiah. The promised king of Israel who will sit on David's throne to rule and to reign forever. The prophet Isaiah had written about the Messiah. The Jewish exiles were eagerly awaiting his coming. But as Christians, we know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. His deity is shown in his riding on the clouds of heaven and his kingship has been given to him by the Father. And it's no coincidence, brothers and sisters, that Jesus' favorite way of referring to Himself in the New Testament was with this same title, the Son of Man. It's a repeated reference from the Lord Jesus that appeals to the very text, the very chapter that we're studying here in the book of Daniel. Jesus came into this world in fulfillment of the Old Testament, declaring that the kingdom of God was at hand and commanding all men everywhere to repent and believe the Gospel. Jesus knew exactly who He was. And perhaps the most remarkable thing that Jesus ever said about Himself is found in Mark 14, verses 62 to 64. In that passage, Jesus has been arrested by the Jewish authorities. The high priest is now interrogating Him and asking Him whether He claimed to be the Messiah and the Son of God. What comes next is just stunning. In response to this line of questioning from Caiaphas the high priest, Jesus answers Him, and he says to him, I am Caiaphas, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Was Jesus just a good moral teacher? I think not. At his final trial, Jesus quoted from Daniel 7. Jesus identifies himself specifically with the Son of Man, a declaration that was clearly understood by the council so that Caiaphas tears his garments and the whole council condemns him to death as a blasphemer. Although the Bible certainly speaks about Jesus returning to this earth one day on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, that's the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, Matthew 24, I believe, friends, that the scene described here in verse 13 and 14 of our text is not a reference to the second coming, but is rather a reference to an event that has already happened in the past. When our Lord rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, He told His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the scene described here in verses 13 and 14 is not something that will happen at the very end of time. It already happened when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to His Father in heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. 
It's the same truth Paul the Apostle teaches in Philippians 2 where we read that God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name that is above every name. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is not merely coming to reign as our King at some undefined point in the future. Jesus is reigning as our King right now. He is reigning and He is ruling over His people in the place of highest authority. And one day, the universal reign of Christ will be manifest on this earth as every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, friends, I've said this many times from the pulpit. I'm going to say it again this morning. We are living in an age of tension where the kingdom of God is already here and where the kingdom of God is coming in even greater fullness. This is the age where Jesus Christ reigns and where Jesus Christ is yet coming to reign. This is the age when Satan has been bound and defeated and when Satan will yet be tormented and thrown into the lake of fire. This is the age when God has delivered us from the power of sin, but has not yet delivered us from the presence of sin. There is a tension in the Scripture, and it's a very real tension between the now of God's kingdom and the not yet of God's kingdom. The present kingdom and the coming kingdom. And in this present evil age, we, the chosen people of God, will face the wrath of these beasts just as Daniel and the covenant people faced them so long ago. Christians do not expect to be spared from tribulation and persecution in this fallen world. I think that is the main point of this text. Do not expect God to spare you from tribulation and persecution. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well in our world today. The beast of Revelation 13 is a real and present threat for the people of God. We can turn on the news and we can see his activity in many parts of the world. Great tribulation has been raging for the past 2,000 years and the blood of the martyrs is already crying out from underneath of the altar. But you know, friends, in spite of all of these things, We, the people of God, should not lose heart because the King is on His throne. Jesus has already won the battle. Colossians 2 says He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. On Calvary's cross, Jesus won the victory over sin and death and hell. And if you belong to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, then Jesus' victory belongs to you. Brothers and sisters, in, our, in the world that often seems so evil and threatening, sometimes very scary, what a comfort it is to know that none of the beasts will ever prevail over the saints of the Most High. If you put your hope in kings and kingdoms and empires and governments and politicians of this world, you are bound to be disappointed, for every one of them, without exception, is destined to pass away and to be forgotten. It's a good point to remember, by the way, in the week following an election. Some of you are very happy about the results of the election. Just remember, four years from now, there's going to be another one. Some of you are not very happy about the results of the election. Remember, four years from now, there's going to be another one. But there is a kingdom coming that will never pass away. And that is the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. I hope your hope is in that kingdom and not in this kingdom. 
You know, speaking long ago about the spiritual battle Christ won on the cross, the great reformer Martin Luther wrote these words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. By the way, I think the word is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God, the living word. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to him abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth is with us still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.